Well, hello, friends, and a special welcome if you're joining us for the first time. Great week to jump in. We're in the middle of a series that we've called The Prayer, and we're exploring the prayer Jesus taught his first followers to pray. And around here, I, I mean, I'm convinced it's an incredible prayer for a number of reasons. Not only that Jesus prayed it and everything Jesus did was incredible, but, but because Jesus' prayer actually gives us a window into how he saw the world and how he wants us to see the world. Moreover, I'm convinced that the prayer Jesus gives to his first followers, the one that we call the Lord's Prayer, actually contains compelling answers to life's greatest questions. Who is God? Who am I? And why am I here? So one day, 2,000 years ago, Jesus' disciples noticed something. He doesn't pray like other people pray. And because Jesus had the power of God in his hands, because everywhere Jesus went, heaven seemed to invade earth, it was like they said, well, teach us to pray. And, and so in response, here's what Jesus said. And if you grew up in church, you've said this countless times. Jesus said, this then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed or holy be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. You may have grown up saying, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sinned against us. Same thing. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And so what we're doing for six weeks this fall is we're taking a look at the six images that sort of fall out of this prayer if you're watching closely. Here's a list of what we're going to cover. Uh, Jesus begins by saying, you want to pray to our Father in heaven. And then he talks about the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, sort of interchangeable ideas in the New Testament. Then he talks about the name of God, and that's what we'll cover today. He talks about daily bread. He talks about forgiveness. And he talks about temptation. Six ideas that I want to argue answer life's greatest questions and also point us uh, to the mission that Jesus has for his first followers and for us today. And so uh, if you haven't been with us, let me catch up real briefly. In week one, we talked about the idea of addressing God as a heavenly father. We said that in the Old Testament, uh, there are lots of names attributed to God, including our father in heaven. But Jesus seems to take that name and pull it to the front of the list. He says, when you address God or when you think about God, I want you to imagine a father in heaven and not a, an imperfect father like the ones you've experienced, but a perfect father the ultimate father. Because Jesus would say, fathers always provide for their kids. Fathers always love their kids. Fathers direct the lives of their kids. Fathers are always in their kid's corner and always on their side. That's how God is to you. He's your heavenly father. That was week one. Then last week we talked about the idea of the kingdom of heaven. And for us, it was a stretch a little bit because often we think of heaven as something that impacts us later, like where we go when we're done with this life. But Jesus seems to pull heaven into the here and now. He says, I want you to pray for, work for, leverage your influence for a bit of heaven to invade your reality here and now. So it's not that it isn't for later, it most certainly is, but it also has everything to do with life here and now. When we align things under our authority, with the way God wants them to be, his kingdom comes in our here and now. That was last week. And again, as Randy said, if you missed it, you can catch up on the podcast. This week, though, I want to talk about why Jesus wants his followers to pray, hallowed or holy is your name. Why does, God, why does Jesus include the name of God in this conversation about 
prayer, why does he want us to return to the idea of the image of God over and over and over again? And to answer that question, I need to take you on a bit of a history lesson. So some of you love the History Channel like I do, nerds, heard. Let me see your hands. Right, just kidding, right? Yeah, um, if you don't, that's okay because it'll be a short history lesson, but, but I just gotta give you some context. It goes like this. The name of God was a really big deal to Jewish people in the first century, including the followers of Jesus. Because the name of God has been a, had been a big deal to the Jewish people since the founding of their nation and the giving of the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai. Uh, check out with me the third command that God gives the children of a man named Israel after rescuing them from slavery in Egypt. So you may know the story. God leads them out of Egypt, brings them to Mount Sinai, and explains to them the rules of relationship. He wants to be their God. They are to be his people. And he said, for that relationship to go well, here's what I need you to do. Here's the third thing that, that shows up. Uh, God says to the people, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. And if you grew up in church like I did, uh, your parents may have tried to apply this commandment in your homes. Uh, they may have said to you, okay, there are some, some, some things that you're not supposed to say if you're a church person, if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus. And in my home, and probably in yours, the explanation went something like this. We can put it up on a slide. Um, when you hit your thumb with a hammer... Don't yell out God's name or God's son's name. Anybody have that experience growing up? Yeah. And, and if you were in a really hardcore family like me, and I can say this because my mom is not here today, okay? Um, but if you're in a really hardcore family, you couldn't even say, geez, because that's too much like Jesus, right? Or gosh, because that's too much like gosh. And you say, my goodness, you know, what, what did you do in moments of anger, frustration, or hurt if you couldn't say geez, gosh, or God's name, or God's son's name? And my mom instructed us, my brother and I, to say, you just say bummer. <laughs> and I, I remember as like a seven-year-old thinking, in a moment of, of unadulterated passion, I, the first word that comes to my mind, I don't think bummer is going to cut it, right? It, it's just... It's just, it, but, but seriously, that is the way most people think about the command not to misuse God's name even today. Well-meaning, well-intentioned people. I remember back in college, this is many moons ago, I had a roommate named Bob. Um, and actually, as I was preparing this week, I found a picture of Bob and I from 1994. Check that. Uh, you can just see the latent greatness there, can't you? I mean, seriously. It's even seasonally appropriate as it is the weekend of Halloween. Right, so anyway, uh, Bob was from a small church in the thumb of Michigan. And they were very, very hardcore about using God's name in vain. And so I remember several times during our time together as roommates where we would go to a coffee shop in Ann Arbor, which is really hard to find. That was a joke. It was so many coffee shops. Anyway, we're sitting at a coffee shop and across the room, somebody would scream out, you know, Jesus Christ. And Bob would cough and say, who loves you? And then they would look back at us and we would look at our shoes. And I was like, this is so painfully awkward, Bob. You've got to stop. And he's like, it's just in me. I can't get away from it. But, but that, the, as it turns out, this literalist approach to following this commandment isn't new. In fact, as best as we can tell, a couple hundred years after the Exodus, the Jewish religious leaders similarly narrowed the application of this command to the literal name of God. 
And for them, that meant something a bit different than it does for us. Early in the story of the Exodus, uh, God gives his literal name to a man named Moses. And if you're familiar with the story, uh, God engages with Moses and tells Moses, I want you to go to Pharaoh and tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And Moses is like, that's a great idea. But if Pharaoh says, you know, who is telling you to let their people go? What should I tell him? Like, what's your name? And God's response to Moses was recorded in the Hebrew scriptures as four letters. In Hebrew, it's yod Hey vav Hey. In English, as close as we can get is Y-H-W-H. That is the name of God. Roughly translated, it means I am that I am, which is, which is not a particularly helpful designation. But God basically says to Moses, I am the only truly self-sufficient being. I am the I am. Well, there was a mystical significance almost immediately attributed to that name for God. So much so that when the Hebrew scholars were copying the Old Testament, and back then they had to copy it by hand, when they would get to the name of God in the story, they would actually change pens and they would change inkwells because they didn't want to accidentally defame or degrade God's name. God's name was holy. God's name was hallowed. God's name was to be set apart. Moreover, they wouldn't verbalize the name of God. Uh, when Jewish people were talking to one another and they would come to that point where they would say God and they wanted to use that name for God, they would say Hashem, which sounds like you need a Kleenex, right? But Hashem means the name. Just it's the name. And they would all go, oh, the name. Yeah, we know the name. Everybody knows the name. It's the name and it's the holy name and it's the set apart name and it's the hallowed name. It's the name above all names. And sometimes they would say, or they would say Adonai, which means Lord. And everybody would know that's what they were talking about. But, th but they came to believe there was a mystical energy in speaking the literal name of God. And you certainly didn't want to take his name in vain. And all that's great. Uh, but is that really the intention behind this commandment? Because remember, in the Ten Commandments, you've got things like don't murder and don't commit adultery. So while God certainly doesn't want us to misuse his name by literally speaking it inappropriately, there seems to be more going on in this command. Let me show you again um, what the text reads in Exodus chapter 20. Again, this is the third commandment. God says, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. And I think there's a clue as to what God is really after in this command. If once again, you look at the Hebrew language, uh, misuse is translated from the Hebrew word tisa. And tisa means to carry something somewhere it isn't supposed to be. To carry something where it isn't supposed to be. That's to misuse something. And that said, this commandment really is about associations. It's like God says to his people, don't associate my name with something I don't want to be associated with. It also means don't leverage God's name to get something that God doesn't want. Don't misuse his name. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. And if you own a company, there's a parallel. Just imagine with me, you have an assistant and one day this assistant goes to one of your key vendors and asks for something to be done in your name, but it's not something that you want done. It's possible that in doing this, they have damaged your reputation and they have damaged the reputation of your company. They have misused your name. Well, in Jesus' day, the religious leaders had institutionalized 
the misusing of God's name. And this was true of both of the political factions, religiously speaking, in ancient Israel. We have Republicans and Democrats. They had Pharisees and Sadducees. They didn't like each other. They didn't play well together on the playground, uh, but they had very different ways of misusing the name of God. I just want to kind of unpack that for you uh, with some of our time today. Um, And with each group, it made Jesus absolutely furious. So here's what happened. Midway through his time with his disciples, Jesus confronts the Pharisees. And they were the religious leaders who primarily functioned in the north of Israel. They were the ones who ran the synagogues, which were like the Jewish churches in the first century. And the Pharisees were seen as experts in interpreting and applying the Old Testament commandments. So what that meant is that the average people would look at the Pharisees to see how God wanted them to live. Unfortunately, the Pharisees had developed some very toxic traditions with regards to the commandments. Let me show you one of them. It has to do with the command to honor your father and mother. It's found in the same Ten Commandments we've been referring to, but Exodus 20, verse 12. Um, Here's what God says. He says, honor your father and mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. And notice that this command is given without any qualifications. Basically, as long as you're alive... And as long as your parents are alive, this command applies. You're to honor them. But the Pharisees had found a loophole. They had found a way around obeying this commandment. What they said was, okay, they said it would be possible for someone to dedicate all their worldly possessions to God. And when you did that, it removed your obligation to assist your parents in their time of need. Therefore, you're not honoring them. Here's how it worked you would basically bring a percentage of all you own to the Pharisees as an offering. They would gladly accept it. And then you would basically verbalize to them, here and now, I give everything I have to the Lord. And they would say, fantastic. And then you would say, if the Lord would like me to do anything with all that that I have now dedicated to him, just let me know. And they would say, fantastic. But then, of course, when your parents got to a spot where perhaps they got older and they needed help financially— and they came to you and asked you for some help or some support, you, they taught, could tell them, I would love to help you. Of course I would love to help you, but you see, I can't because I've donated it all to the Lord. Loophole. So the Pharisees had come up with a tradition to get around the thrust of the commandment, and in doing so, they were associating God's name with something that God wanted nothing to do with. I'm sure Jesus doesn't care. Oh, no, he does. Here we go. Um, In Mark's account of Jesus' life, check out what Jesus says to the Pharisees. And Jesus said to the Pharisees, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. So apparently this was not just one flavor that this was happening. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father and mother is to be put to death. And some of you parents are thinking, ah, my teenagers need to read that verse again. But anyway, um, he says, but you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father and mother is Corbin, that is devoted to God, then you're no longer, you no longer let them do anything for their father and mother. And you say, okay, well, okay, that's a big deal. Oh yeah, it's a real big deal. Jesus says, thus, You nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And he says, you do many things like that. He says, God has clearly spoken. It isn't fuzzy. It's without qualification. And yet 
You've created a whole system to nullify the commands of God and you're doing it in God's name. Because of your position, people assume that God has signed off on your tradition. So you're making people think something about God that simply isn't true. You're affecting his reputation. That was the Pharisees. Now the other religious party, the Sadducees, had done something very different and yet somehow very similar. Later in his life, Jesus confronts another blatant misuse of God's name. Uh, the Sadducees, who controlled the temple in Jerusalem, had basically taken the whole temple system, which God had instituted, and turned it into a tourist trap. Jews from all over the world would travel to the temple at appointed times to bring a sacrifice to God. But the Sadducees had developed a system in which they benefited. If you came from a far off land, you might have brought with you an animal for sacrifice as was commanded and you would enter the temple courts and they would tell you that though it's nice that you lug your lamb lucky all the way you know, from three countries over, uh, this lamb was not approved for sacrifice. You say, well, how do I get them approved? Oh, you can't get them approved. We pre-approve animals. You have to buy one of our pre-approved animals. And you're like, am I at Disney World here or something? Well, how does that work, right? And they said, yeah. And you say, okay, well, I brought some currency from where I'm from and I would love to buy one of your pre-approved lambs. Not really, but I would love to because I walked all this way to do the sacrifice. And they would say, oh, you know what? Your currency isn't any good in the temple either. We have a, an official temple currency because your currency is polluted by the world. We have this holy currency. So we need you to change your local currency into the currency of the temple. And we can do that for you, no problem. And I'm sure it isn't, I'm sure it's a great exchange rate. You can really see where this is going, right? Yeah. And then you can buy our pre-approved lamb at a hefty markup. And you're, and you're standing there if you've walked three countries over to the temple, and maybe this is your first time in Jerusalem, and you're thinking, I don't know that this is what God had in mind, right? Because in Jesus' day, the Sadducees had become some of the wealthiest people in Israel by ripping off people who couldn't afford to be ripped off. They had orchestrated a corrupt system in God's name. And so when Jesus enters the temple courts, the last week of his life, the week of the Passover, he takes a look at everything that's going on and he becomes furious because of what was happening to God's name and God's reputation by this corrupt system. Here's John gives us this account. He says, uh, John says, in the temple courts, Jesus found people selling cattle and sheep and doves and others sitting at tables exchanging money. And so if, you're, if you don't understand the context, you're like, okay, no big deal. And Jesus' response seems a little over the top. It's like, so he made a whip of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle, and he scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And I remember as a kid reading this and being, Jesus, dude, try the decaf, right? I mean, what in the world is going on here? I mean, this is not very Jesus-y, the thing you're doing. I mean, to make a whip of cords and drive people from the temple. I mean, is this really what God would want you to do? And of course, you got to go, well, like, apparently it was. In Mark's account, Jesus says something really fascinating. It says, and as Jesus taught them, he said, is it not written, as in, in the Hebrew scriptures, in the Old Testament, my house, says God, will be called a house of prayer for all nations. That's kind of God's heart, that people from all over the world would be able to come and know God and know what he's like. He says, but you, Sadducees, have made it into a den of robbers. You've made God's house a den of robbers. The eighth commandment says, thou shalt not steal, and you're stealing. But you're not just stealing, you're stealing from God in the house of God. 
when people show up to the temple, they assume that this is what God wants and they trust it because they believe that God placed you in authority, but it's not right. It's not fair. People think God wants to rip them off. You have misused his name. People can't really understand who God is and what he wants and what he's like because of the way you carry his name. I'm so glad this doesn't happen anymore. I'm so glad that nowhere in our world do people misuse the name of God and attach the name of God to something God wants nothing to do with. Actually, I think this helps explain why so many people leave church and Jesus and God and the pursuit of faith behind. Because they're hurt by Christians who with their mouth profess they're following Jesus, but with their actions don't really follow Jesus. People leave and if you talk to them, they say, well, all I saw was a bunch of rules and restrictions and hypocrisy and judgment and all of it is done in the name of God. And it's interesting how often I have this conversation. Um, this week I was at Starbucks. I know you're stunned, okay? A pastor at Starbucks, that is like a cop at a donut shop. I know. So I'm sitting there with my laptop open, with my Bible open, and a Keystone friend comes over and says, hey, I'm so glad I ran into you. I was going to send you an email. And I said, you know, what's going on? And, and he said, I, I have a friend who I've been trying to invite to join us on Sundays, and they just can't get their head around coming back to church it, it, because they were hurt by church people and they've connected it to God. And I said, yeah, and, and what, what do you say? And, and, and I said, what's the story? And he said, well, well she grew up in, going to church and every time the doors were open, they were there, but she started paying attention in middle school. And man, these church people weren't very much making a positive difference in the world, just kind of judging the world. And she finally got to a point where she said, I don't want to do this anymore. And so as soon as she could, as soon as she moved out of her parents' house, she moved out of her parents' faith. And what she left behind she describes as toxic. So what do you say to someone like that? Because the world is full of people like that, people that God loves, people that Jesus came to die for. What do you say to people like that? And what I said was um, the answer is actually not something you say. It's something that you do. Years ago, um, I heard a quote from a Franciscan priest by the name of Brennan Manning. He wrote a book called The Ragamuffin Gospel. Excellent book. I don't read much Franciscan priest material, but this is a good one. Um, and it's one of those quotes that will haunt you in all sorts of helpful ways after you hear it. And I've carried it with me for years, and so I just want to um, bless you with it, and hopefully it haunts you too. Here's what, here's what Brennan Manning writes. He says, the, sing the greatest single cause of atheism... So people that don't believe in God in our world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips. So I believe I'm a follower and walk out the door and deny him with their lifestyle. This is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. And what's amazing to me is, I mean, it's fair to say we all deny Jesus with our lifestyle. So perfection is not the goal. But he's saying if you watch people, church people, and Jesus does not have seemed to made a bit of positive difference in their life, you may conclude that there's nothing really going on there or certainly nothing that's worth being a part of. 
In this quote, Brendan Manning correctly argues that when followers of Jesus don't follow Jesus, the name and reputation of God get muddied to the point that people walk away from the pursuit of a relationship with him. People see the rules and the restrictions and the hypocrisy and the judgment and they think, if God is like that, I don't want any part of that. Why would I want a relationship with a God like that? So what do we do with that? And honestly, for followers of Jesus, the answer is shockingly simple. Because if you open the New Testament and you start to read the letters to those first Christians, our marching orders, like how are we supposed to live? Like the Old Testament, they had these gauntlets of commands that they had to do and not do. What about us? What is it for us if we want to carry God's name today? And what you see in those first letters is that to follow the way of Jesus is to do what love requires over and over and over again. You see it most cleanly in a letter written by a pastor named Paul to Christians living in a Roman region called Galatia. Here's what Paul writes. He says, for the entire law, in other words, everything it takes to follow God and represent him well in our homes, in our communities, in our workplaces, and in the world, the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Just one. If you want to get a tattoo of the Bible verse, I recommend this one, right? One command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. And I know what you're thinking. Who's my neighbor? Jesus said, everybody. Everybody's your neighbor. Nobody's not your neighbor. Not just the people like you, but the people that are nothing like you. Not just the people you like, but the people you don't like. Everybody's your neighbor. Your mission. Love them. See you in heaven. Right? I mean, literally, that's the mission of followers of Jesus. Love of God is authenticated and demonstrated by love of neighbor. It's simple, it's clarifying, it's disruptive, it's overwhelming. And in case you're wondering what Paul means when he says love, he told you that too in another letter. It's the one you always read at your weddings. Many of you are going to have a wedding flashback right now. Ladies, think of the white dress. Here we go. Paul says, What is love? Love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it does not dishonor others, it's not self-seeking, it's not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love, Paul writes, never fails. So to carry God's name well means to publicly exhibit the characteristics of love. More patience, more kindness, less pride, less anger, more grace. And if you're paying attention, you're like, dude, if I lived that way, I would look very different than most people. And I think Jesus would look at you and say, that is exactly what I'm talking about. When people see the difference that God can make in a life, we carry his name well. And when we carry his name well, people are drawn to him. The first Christians were an irresistible force in the ancient world that literally turned the Roman Empire on its head because they lived love. And in living love, they carried the name with integrity. Friends, people suffer when Christians misuse the name of God. They suffer because they're harmed by Christians, 
But even the one who's misusing the name of God in the end suffers as well because they never really get to know what the power of God in their life can do either. They miss God in the process of using God for their, towards their ends. Think about this. The experts in violating God's law in Jesus' day were the religious leaders. And the religious leaders were tasked with identifying the Messiah, the promised one who God would send to make things right. And they missed him. They missed him. They crucified him. And you say, well, why? Because they had made a profession of misusing his name. They developed the traditions that kept people from really coming to know God. And they couldn't come to know God either. They had their traditions, but they missed him. And so, when Jesus' first followers asked him to teach them to pray, one of the images that Jesus wants to keep in front of us all is the idea of the name of God. And the name is holy, and the name is hallowed, and the name is set apart. And the name is connected to the reputation of God. And he wants us to carry that with us as we navigate our lives. He wants us to remember if we're here, if you're here this morning, you're a follower of Jesus, I think he wants you to remember that people are watching how you treat your kids. And again, we're all going to screw up. Perfection's not the deal, but they're watching. They're watching us with our kids. They're watching how we treat our spouse. They're watching how we treat our employer, or employees. They're watching how we treat our employer. They're watching what we do when people hurt us. They're watching what we do with our money. They're watching how we treat people who are nothing like them. Jesus is, is clear. If you are his follower, you carry the name of God with you everywhere you go. And the only question that remains is will you carry it well? Would you stand? I'll close us in prayer. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you we thank you for preserving the words of your son. We thank you for the clarity that that brings to us. And I pray this week as we sort of maybe monitor our behaviors, monitor our thoughts in, in, in maybe another deeper way, I pray that you would help us seriously consider how well we are carrying your name. Thank you for trusting us to be your agents. Thank you for trusting us to be your representatives. I pray that you Give us a lot of courage as, as we make the changes that we need to make so that we more reflect who you are to a world who so desperately needs to know the truth. A lot of us have, have baggage from our past and I pray you help us leave that behind and, and, and to move forward with you. And as we do, we pray that our lives would shine and that people who don't know you would come to know you as their heavenly father. So we bless you and we thank you. We love you and we desire to love you more. In the matchless name of your son, Jesus, the name above all names, we pray. Everyone said, amen. Friends, go in peace. We'll see you next week.